Becker's message is the message of our church. We are here to transform lives through the Word of God, through the people of God in community, and through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so if you're visiting with us today, we, uh, that's what we're about as a church. If you're watching online, we welcome you, and thank you for being with us. Um, we trust God will speak to your hearts and lives. Our missionary, um, one of our missionaries in Ukraine, Nikolai Reftov, grew up in atheistic uh, Soviet Union, and as a result, he himself was an atheist as he reached his adult life. With four PhDs under his belt, he was sent um, by the uh, Soviet Union government to China for a number of months. He was a metallurgist developing metals for the Red Army for missiles for tanks and the like. And while there, separated from his family and very lonely, he began to develop a God consciousness. Went back to Ukraine, um, his base of residence, saw an ad in the paper for a free Bible from Vienna, Austria. So he sent for it. He began to read Genesis and he read Exodus through most of it, and then he got to Leviticus, and it all came to a dead halt. Like for many of us, the book of Leviticus is dry. We uh, find it hard to understand and inapplicable to our lives. And so it's the book of the Bible that we most readily skip over and move on to better things. Ellen Ross, who wrote a commentary on the book of Leviticus, um, an excellent commentary, said this, for most Bible readers, the book of Leviticus is as barren and unknown as the dry, trackless wilderness of its setting. Most readers prefer to skip quickly from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy or even to Joshua once they discover how this material reads. When I announced in our small group that we're going to do Leviticus as our next study, one of the men said, I think I'm going to go to Colorado for a few months. Um, <laughs> But for the Old Testament Israelite, Leviticus was vitally important because it captured the entire religious system of the nation of Israel. But it's equally important for us because it is absolutely foundational to our understanding of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The book of Galatians tells us that it's the tutor to lead us to Christ, and indeed it is. In Colossians, we studied a book that captured the person of Christ. He is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But in the book of Leviticus, we begin to understand not the person of Christ, but his work. There is more direct revelation given to Moses in the book of Leviticus than in any other of books that he wrote. The meaning of Leviticus is pertaining to the tribe of Levi. The Leviticus, Levitic, the tribe of Levi were the priestly tribes. We are called in the New Testament a holy priesthood. We assume the priesthood in our lives that the Old Testament tribe of Levi had. And so there is much applicable to our lives from the book. There are many themes in the book, one of which is worship. 
But the dominant theme is the theme of holiness. Peter quotes it when he says, be holy as I am holy, uh, quoting from the book of Leviticus. The book portrays a holy Lord God and Father, a holy tabernacle, a holy priesthood, holy vessels and holy garments, and a holy life purified and separated unto God. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on the book, says that he laughed in church one Sunday when the song leader announced that we were going to sing Take Time to Be Holy, but because of a lack of time, we're going to sing verses 1 and 4. <laughs> and that about captures our thoughts about holiness. Let's take time to be holy, but let's make it quick. You see, God's desire for your life and mine is that we be holy, which means to be separated unto him. Our goal in life often is happiness. Young couples get married because they want to be happy. And then they find out that marriage isn't to make them happy. All it does is give them trouble in life. <laughs> but marriage is designed by God to make us holy. It sharpens us. It helps us to direct our attention to God. It reveals our fallenness and our sinful nature more than any other relationship in life. Jonathan Edwards says this, we, that he that sees the beauty of holiness or true moral good sees the greatest and most important thing in the world. The book of Hebrews declares, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You want to experience God? Experience Christ? You won't do it without holiness. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from Great Britain, said this, if I had the, my choice of all the blessings I can conceive of, I would choose perfect conformity to the Lord Jesus, or in one word, holiness. Well, the opening chapters of the book of Leviticus are built around five major sacrifices, which become the subject of the first five messages of our series, and if we see interest greatly waning so that the seats are empty on Sunday, we might end it with that, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't think you'll find it so. But those five chapters are built about around the theme of how to maintain fellowship with the Holy God. How to maintain fellowship with the Holy God. The later chapters are given to living a life of purity and set apart unto God. Today, we want to study the first of those sacrificial offerings, the offering of the, called the burnt offering. I'd like to have you stand for the reading of the scriptures and turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. And if you don't know where Leviticus is, it's the third book of the Bible, so it's not very far in. <laughs> I'm reading from the New King James Version. Um, you can follow along if you have another version. Uh, it won't be that far astray. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will. 
at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Some of your versions have, he shall offer it so that you may be acceptable to the Lord, as we'll mention probably a better translation at that point. Verse four, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's son shall bring the blood and and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all the altar, all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And then this instructions are given to repeat the same thing if the offering is of the sheep or the goats, people that were less well-to-do would offer a lesser animal, and then people that were poor would either offer two birds or young pigeons, the only difference being with them that the priest would wring the head instead of slaying it at the altar. The word of God, you may be seated. Most of us live our lives wanting to please other people. I want to please my wife as her husband. I don't always do that, but I want to. I want to please my kids. I want to please you. Um, It's just a basic motivation of life. I think for all of us, at least in some measure, We want to please others, but we call some people people pleasers because they want to please others all of the time. And sometimes we need to please some people some of the time, but not all of the time, because what God calls us to be in life is a God pleaser. And so I've entitled the message today, Becoming a God Pleaser. In this particular chapter, we read about an individual who comes who wants to offer a burnt offering at the tabernacle. And so he takes a bull, or it may be a sheep or a goat, and we'll show some pictures, and he takes that bull or sheep or goat, and he brings it between what we call the brazen altar and the door of the tabernacle. That brazen altar is the big altar right there in the front of the court. He presses his hand down on the head of the animal, and then he takes that animal, and he cuts its neck, and the animal crumples to the ground. No doubt drags it aside, and he skins the animal. And then the priest takes the head and the T-bone steak, the filet mignon, the ribeye, the better portions, the fat portions of the animal, and he lays them on this brazen altar. And then the, the legs and the intestines are washed because they're dirty, they're filthy. They need to be purified first. And then they are taken as well and placed on the altar so that the entire animal is placed on the brazen altar. And then it is all burned up. And that's the burnt offering. But the question is, what does it mean? How does it apply? Just knowing that part is simply dry reading for most of it. 
But it's very, it was very important for the Israelites, and it's important for you to, and I to understand as well as we apply it to our lives. And there's two important points that we will learn about the burnt offering. Number one, it was an offering of atonement, whereby a person became assured of their access to God and their fellowship with him. It was an offering of atonement whereby a person could be absolutely assured that God was smiling upon his life and he was in harmony with God and God was pleased with his life and he was pleasing God. As we mentioned in the book of Colossians, we, are seeking, we live our lives to know Christ so that we might be fully pleasing in him and walking worthy of him. And it was by the burnt offering that a man became assured, in fact, that he was pleasing to God and he was walking worthy of him, something you and I long to know in the depths of our hearts. I want to know that God is for me and I am for God and that he is on my side and that I'm on his and I'm in fellowship with him, and I'm a recipient of his love. I hate it in life when I know that there's something between me and my wife, and I'm not in harmony with her. I can't work. I can't study. I can't think. I, I think about that because I want to know that we are okay. And if we've had a conflict, often I'll ask the question, are you sure we're okay now? I want to know that, and I want to know that with God. And the burnt offering pictures a person who, because of the atonement, knows that he's in fellowship with God. So we want to look, first of all, at the offering for the Israelite and then how it applies to us. Notice verse 2, once again. Speak to the children of Israel when any one of you brings an offering. Now, please note this and make this observation about this offering. It was voluntary offering. It was a voluntary offering. And listen carefully, it was not specifically related to any sin that the offerer had committed. It was a voluntary offering not connected to any particular sin. It is called an offering. The word for offering is the Hebrew word korban. It, it, it means to draw near. That's the meaning of the initial term. So it was a voluntary offering by which the offerer drew near unto his heavenly father and noted that the heavenly father was smiling upon him. It was an offering made to the Lord, the text says. That phrase, to the Lord, is used seven times in Leviticus chapter 1. And so it's given again and again to portray the fact that this is an offering by which an offerer would draw near to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the God who had redeemed them from Egypt, and to be in harmony with him. Verse 4. He shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. To put his hand on him, not just to lay his hand on it, but to press down on it. That's the idea of the term. But it symbolized the transference of sin from the offerer to a sinless substitute. It would also hold that animal in place. And then he would slice the neck, and the animal, as we mentioned, would crumple to the ground. But notice the purpose it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. 
Now, it's important to understand and remember it's to make atonement for a person who is not confessing a specific sin. It is a voluntary offering. Nevertheless, it is made to make atonement for him. To make atonement is, means to propitiate or to satisfy so that wrath is no longer displayed toward, toward a sinner. It's to appease the wrath of a holy heavenly father and his anger towards sin and the sinner. I didn't watch the Academy Awards last week, but I read the story, maybe you have read it as well, of how Will Smith got out of the front row because the presenter, Chris Rock, had made a, uh, a, an unkind comment about Will Smith's life, uh, wife, and Smith got up out of his seat and he slapped the face of Chris Rock on national TV for all the world to see. He was indignant because his wife had been insulted, and rightly so. His action? Well, maybe not too wise. But the anger was justified. He had wrath because of the sin against his wife. And God's anger towards sin and the sinner is justified as well. He has a natural, justified, intense anger towards sin because he is absolutely holy and he is absolutely pure. And because of that, he cannot allow sinful men or women or children in his presence because they are born in sin. He's just as indignant towards sin as a surgeon and, and, and passionate towards holiness as a surgeon is towards cleanliness in the operating room. He has to have perfectly sterilized instruments, bacteria-free, if that operation is going to be successfully performed and the person is going to survive. And so too, a holy God, separate from sin, has an intense hatred of sin. And so he must be satisfied in his wrath. It must be paid for by a sinless substitute. Atonement has to be made. His wrath expiated. It's what a husband does when he's, when he's hurt his wife and he brings home flowers to try to appease her. Or a child offers to do an extra chore when he knows he's in trouble with his dad. It's to appease their anger toward them. It's the purpose of the atonement to satisfy the wrath of an almighty God. Years ago, when all of our children were home, we had an old beat-up car, and it had seen its best days, and uh, we needed another vehicle, and I didn't have money to buy one. But my next-door neighbor had a seven-passenger station wagon, you know, a couple of seats up front, three in the next row, and then two in the back where you had to ride looking backwards. And he, uh, it was worth more than what he wanted for it, but he said, I'll give it to you for $1,000. I didn't have $1,000. So I went down to my local banker, a um, friend of mine, went to this church. I said, I need to borrow $1,000, but I don't know, can we kind of stretch this thing out long term? Because I don't know, we were living hand to mouth. I didn't know how I was going to pay it back. Five kids, we had our hands full just paying the bills. He said, sure, I'll tell you what, we own your $1,000, and at the end of three months, we'll... Uh, you, you, you pay what you can on the principal, make sure you pay the interest, and whatever's left will roll the note. 
So three months later, I went in and I said, I can't pay anything on the principal. I can pay the interest. He said, no problem. Just pay the interest. We'll roll the note. So we rolled the note. Three months later, same story. Went in, couldn't pay anything on the principal, could pay the interest. And he said, no problem. We'll roll the note. Three months later came, we rolled the note. I had made a penny on the principal. Fourth quarter came around. I went in had a little bit funding to pay on the principal. And I went and I said, I want to pay the interest on the note, a little bit on the principal. I got some Christmas gift. And he said, and the, and the lady said, oh, the note's been paid. Oh, really? Are you sure? Yeah, the note's been paid. Now, to this day, I don't know who paid the note. Maybe that banker did. I, I had never learned. But I know that if that, there was a debt that had been incurred and that debt had to be paid or there may have been a board of directors on that, of that bank that would frowned, uh, frowned on the non-payment of that particular note, it had to be paid. And so someone paid it for me and the, the, it appeased the potential wrath of the board of directors of that bank because that note had been paid. That's what the burnt offering did for the people of Israel to assure them of their fellowship with God and their harmony with them if they voluntarily brought such an offering. Notice verse 5. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle. And so there would be a receptacle there. They would drain the blood, capture the blood in the receptacle, and then sprinkle it around that altar that you saw. The scriptures declare to us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. And because the life is in the blood, the blood has to be shed for this offer to know that he has fellowship with God. Well, that's what it was for the people of Israel. What does it mean for you and I? Well, the application ought to be apparent because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ, death upon the cross, did for you and I. He was a sinless substitute. He died in our place. Our sin was placed upon him. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He bore our sins upon the cross. And his blood was shed so that we can say, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Christ, let us draw near. And so you see, every time you draw near to God, you draw near to him on the basis of the atonement of Christ upon the cross. But remember we said that this particular sacrifice was not related to any specific sin. It rather was offered by the offer in recognition that he was a sinner and he needed atonement even though he wasn't conscious of any specific sin. You see, 1 John 1, 8 says that if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. There is no point in time, even right now, that we ever can claim to be without sin. Not a single point in time. We are all sinners deserving of God's wrath, even in this particular moment, even though we are not conscious of any specific sin that we have committed. And so John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, the sin that we know about, he is faithful and just to confess, to, to forgive our sin and to cleanse us, what? 
from all unrighteousness. Therefore, in 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, even the ones we don't know about as well as the sin of the world. And so when I hit my knees in prayer, one of the things that I do on a regular basis is I cry out, God, search me and know me. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, search my heart so that I might know my sins that I can confess to you. And sometimes God will bring to mind how the day before I may have spoken out of turn and slandered somebody. Or I griped and complained about something, knowing that the scriptures say do all things without grumbling or complaining. Some of you might be aware of a of a way that you stretched the truth a little bit so that it really became a lie. You kind of fudged and convinced yourself it really wasn't, but it was, and you become convinced of it. Or you know you looked at that pornographic site again. Or you lusted after that woman again. And those are the sins you know about, and you confess those. And God cleanses and forgives it on the basis of atonement. But in all honesty, sometimes there are hit my knees and I'll say, God, search me and know me and try my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. And I'm really not aware of anything to confess. That's the truth. I look back at the next day, the night before, and... But am I guilty? Oh, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. And that's where the burnt offering comes into play because God forgives me of that which I don't even know about if I've confessed what I know about. That's what the burnt offering is for, is for whoever wants to come and know that he's fellowship with God. So that I get up from my knees and I say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I don't remember what, but I confess my sin and I come into your presence on the basis of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I walk out of my house and I head to the office and I've got a smile on my heart because I know that I'm in fellowship with God because he dealt with that sin. That's the burnt offering. It's the sin of atonement for sin that we're not even aware of. And so every day, every moment, every single prayer, every act of service is done on the basis of the atonement that God's wrath is satisfied and I and you can know that we are in harmony and fellowship with God and he's smiling upon us and the love of Christ has filled our hearts and we are full of his love because we know that our sin is paid for and we're walking with him. That's what the burnt offering is. There's nothing in life knowing that you are in, in, a, in, 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 in fellowship with God and you are bringing him pleasure because you are in fellowship with him because you recognize and are thankful for the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what the burnt offering is. But it was second, an offering of surrender whereby a person offered it all to God. Notice again in verse 3 these words. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd. That word for burnt is olah. It speaks of the fact that it's all burned up. This sacrifice had to be a male 
without blemish, a bowl that was perfect, a sinless substitute, the most one of the most valued animals in the flock. It couldn't be leftovers. It had to be the best. It was given to God. No blemish, prime breeding stock. And it all had to be burnt up. Olah means to go up. It all had to be consumed. The Greek translation of this word is holokotoma, from which we get our word holocaust. When Hitler um, was guilty of the holocaust, he wanted to exterminate the entire Jewish population, not only of Europe, but of the world. He wanted it all to go. It was what he called the final solution. The animal had to be completely burned up. Please notice, this is the only of the five sacrifices that had to be completely burned up. It was all given to the Lord. And because it was a male, because it was without blemish, because it was the best of the flock, because it all had to be burned up, it pictured surrender of the offerer to God. God, I'm giving you my best. I'm giving you my all. I want to surrender completely to you. And that's the second aspect of the burnt offering. It was an offering of atonement, but it was an offering of complete surrender to God. And as such, you and I are called, as we apply it to our life, to surrender all to him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living what? Sacrifice what? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's to say to God, I'm all yours, Father. I'm all yours. Paul had that spirit in life when he was told that he was going to go into imprisonment by going to Jerusalem. He said, none of, and warned and begged not to go to Jerusalem. He said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I'm God's, and whatever he wants to do with me, I believe it's his will that I go there. I offer myself up. I'm his. William Booth said that the greatness of a man's life is the measure of his surrender. Notice that no man in this text is commanded to bring an offering to when a man wants to. You're not commanded to bring your life to Jesus Christ in full surrender. That's why Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beg you, I ask you, I invite you, But full surrender to God is an invitation that is given. It is not a command. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross. If you want to follow him, surrender. You see, there's a difference between salvation, which is a free gift. You're also invited to receive that gift. But once you receive it, there's a second invitation that is given to believers. If you want to follow him, then surrender. Oswald Chambers wrote these words, discipleship and salvation are two different things. A disciple is one who realizes in the meaning of the atonement, deliberately gives himself up to Jesus Christ in unspeakable gratitude. Jesus always talked about discipleship with an if. We are at perfect liberty to toss our spiritual head and say, no, thank you. 
that is a bit too stern for me. And the Lord will never say a word. He'll never plead. But the opportunity is there. I think the thing that so moved me about Steve and Ruth Porter, who were with us last week, and if you haven't, uh, if you weren't here, watch their story on video from last week's service, was their absolute surrender to the will of God. People begged them to stay home. It's too dangerous. Come home. And they sought the Lord, and the Lord said no. And so they suffered three armed robberies with gun at gunpoint at their head, kidnapped once. The Falanis within two miles of their home just last August, destroying all the land and killing people and burning property in the way. And they stayed because God said it was absolute surrender to the will of God. We often hear of athletes say, I want to leave it all on the field. Meaning they want to give everything they've got, all the energy, all the strength, all the mind that they can give to it, to the athletic contest that they are about to engage. Leave it all on the field. And that's what surrender is. It's saying, I've got one life to live. It's going to soon be passed. Lord, whatever is done for Christ will last. I'm going to leave it all on the field. I'm going to give it all to you. I am yours, Lord. And surrender invites hardship. There's a price to pay. It's not convenient Christianity. Whether it's preparing an extra meal or opening your home to some people that need a place or opening your home for weekly, for weekly small group or whatever it is, that's always a price to pay. But surrender says, I'll pay it, Lord. It's looking at your week and seeing every minute book and then somebody else asking you for something else that you need to do that you know God's calling you to do until so you do it because you're surrendered. It's saying your money is his, Lord. Whatever you want to do, it, it's yours. Old hymn that we used to sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful to thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. We sang the hymn, I wonder how many of us lived it and applied it. Life is short, it goes fast. And if you want to please God, surrender. Surrender. And say, God, I'm yours, and what I have is yours. We have to talk about boundaries in the Christian life. Boundaries are there because people can't take what we have, but we can give up our boundaries voluntarily for the needs of others, and sometimes we are called to do that. Absolute surrender. Do we really say, Lord, I'm yours. Today, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do in me and through me, I'm yours. I want my time to be yours. I want my effort to be yours. I'm yours. I surrender. We bring pleasure to God when we come on the basis of the atonement and we completely surrender our will, our means, our intellect, our time. The third thing we learn about this particular offering is really the result of the first two. It did bring 
pleasure to God. For notice again, verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will, in my version, better read, as we mentioned a moment ago, so that you might be acceptable to the Lord. The meaning of the phrase translated free will in the New King James Version is better translated in the IV, NIV, acceptable to the Lord, because the phrase speaks of bringing divine pleasure to God. When you surrender and you're coming on the base of the atonement and you become thankful because you know Christ paid for you, you, you please God. You bring divine pleasure to him. Then notice what he says in verse 9. He shall wash its entrails, its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice. It all goes up. An offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And as this offering was going up, the entire priesthood in the courtyard could smell it along with the offer as long as as well as the people camping in their tents nearby. You've perhaps gone out in your backyard and someone's got a T-bone on the grill next to you and it just smells in and, oh, I wish I could have that T-bone or that ribeye or whatever it might be. Well, this was ribeye steak being grilled on that altar and it was bringing a sweet aroma and so the people smelled that and they, 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 they wrote it in terms of what we call an anthropomorphism. It became, as a sweet aroma to us, it became, brought pleasure to the heart of God. And so you come on the basis of the atonement with thankful heart that as a sinner it's been paid for, surrender to the Lord, and you bring pleasure and you become pleasing to God and you have fellowship with him and he smiles upon you and you're in harmony with him. His good pleasure is poured out upon your life. And so becoming pleasing to God comes when we draw near on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ and the surrender of our lives to him. It is ultimately displayed in Jesus Christ, and that's what this communion table is all about. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. If you're in the worship team, you can make your way to the platform. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He died not only for that which you know you commit, he died for all your sin. It was an act of complete surrender. I came to do your will, O Lord, we read in the book of Hebrews, quoting the book of Psalms, I came to do your will, an act of complete surrender. And it blessed the Father. It blessed the Father. Isaiah tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Think about that. It pleased the Father to bruise Christ. The sacrifice of Christ brought pleasure to him. And so we take the Lord's table today in celebration of what he's done for us in thanksgiving and knowing that we are in harmony with him. And so today, if you have known sin, we urge you to confess that sin. To say, search me, O God, and know my heart. We'll have, you'll have some time while the worship team leads us and 
and afterwards to search your heart and confess what you know. And if God brings something to your mind, confess it. If you sinned against another person, it may be important for you to walk over to them or grab their hand and whisper in there, I know I did wrong last night. Would you forgive me? I know I raised my voice this morning on the way to church. Would you forgive me? And then having been cleansed of that or unaware of anything else, to take the off, to take the elements, knowing that you're in harmony with God because of what the birth offering represents. You're atoned for, you're a sinner who comes completely by grace. Let's stand. Move out of your rows, if you would, to your left, back into your rows to your right. Hold the elements. We'll take them together. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've not yet put your faith in him, rather than take the elements or before you take them, we urge you to receive the gift of eternal life by trusting Christ and then take the elements. If you're not ready to do that, remember these elements are for the Lord's people who know him as their Savior. We invite you to come. Hold them, we'll take them together in a few moments.